Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. We are delighted to welcome as our special guest this week, Yasha Monk an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University, a contributor to The Atlantic Magazine, and the founder of Persuasion. So before we um, move into our first topic, which will be uh, the Trump Trump and the military and the Jeffrey Goldberg uh, article in The Atlantic, um, Yasha, I'm going to give you an opportunity. First of all, thanks so much for being here. And I want to give you an opportunity to just um, do a commercial for Persuasion. Tell us what it, what, what prompted you to found it and, and uh, why people should be interested. Well, thank you so much, Mona. And it's really a pleasure to be on this wonderful podcast with, uh, as I was joking before we start to record, uh, all of my friends who I don't get to see because of uh, this damn pandemic. Um, so I think we're in a strange moment in which we are making uh, hopefully real progress in some important things. I think there's real injustices in this country that we are talking about and addressing in a real way uh, at the moment. Um, but I also think that uh, a spirit of fear, um, a strange intellectual orthodoxy has taken hold of a lot of mainstream American institutions. This is not just about shunning uh, racists or sexists or uh, anti-Semites. It is about narrowing the space of what you can think and how you can talk so much that there's a prescribed opinion on 30, 40, 50 different topics. And any uh, deviance from it um, has very uh, scary consequences for professors at universities, for journalists at many newspapers and uh, magazines, even as my reporting has shown for many ordinary people who end up getting fired from complete normie jobs because they are falsely accused um, of having done uh, terrible things. Um, and so I think that we need to fight for the values of a free society. We need to fight for the values of uh, free speech, uh, that we need an institution, a publication, a community in which we pledge ourselves to advancing and defending the values of philosophical liberalism. And so uh, about two months ago now, I founded this platform called Persuasion. Uh, and it's really been wonderful and gratifying how quickly we have grown. Um, you know, our articles go to tens of thousands of subscribers, and we have some of the best authors in the country uh, writing for us. Um, we are doing really fun and great uh, in-person events, happy hours, ways for people who share this set of philosophical convictions and the set of concerns to connect with us and with each other. So. Uh, since you told me to advertise, I will uh, make sure to <laughs> mention the website. It is www.persuasion.community. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like I found an intellectual home. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, people can have multiple intellectual homes. So they can uh, be at home, both with you and your crowd um, and with Persuasion. And I would love for uh, all of the listeners to this podcast to come and join up. Lovely. Um, I want to just um, emphasize that the piece you wrote um, a month or so ago about uh, we are f stop firing innocent people um, was just terrific. Um, certainly uh, laid out 
what is what is happening and and put the lie to the notion that um, it is only intellectuals or or people in universities who are subject to this kind of cancel culture. And uh, you gave examples of a number of just hapless ordinary folks who got caught up in this, and uh, it was kind of kind of like a mania. And uh, you laid it out beautifully. Thank you so much. Um, so. So much has happened this week uh, since our last uh, podcast that uh, we, I'm not sure we can fit it all in. But let us begin with the um, with the Jeffrey Goldberg article that appeared uh, last uh, last Friday, I think, um, regarding um, Trump's relationship with the military. Damon, I'll start with you. Um, filled with all kinds of uh, damning quotations uh, from the president. They were from. Uh, anonymous sources, but uh, the the editor in chief of the Atlantic put his own byline on this story, and he has an excellent reputation. And furthermore, the things that were that were attested to in this piece, such as uh, Trump saying, "Why would I go to that cemetery?" referring to the cemetery where World America's World War One dead are uh, interred. Uh, in France, uh, it's filled with losers," said Trump. Um, and um, but in any event, it's so consistent, isn't it, with things that we have heard him say in public, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that was the the bizarre thing about this story that it at once was completely shocking and totally unsurprising because mm. of Donald Trump. So it's really just confirming things that he has actually said not just uh, attributed to him by sources, anonymous or not, but actually on tape uh, before cameras uh, for years. He, he used to rail against John McCain and said uh, famously during the 2016 campaign that uh, he, uh, he doesn't like uh, soldiers who've been captured, uh, referring to McCain being a POW and suffering terribly when he was uh, held captive. So, you know, on the one hand, this is just confirmation of what we already know very well and what has been established on the record indisputably about the president. Um, on the other hand, it's so morally shocking that every new example sort of leads you to, to do a double take. And I think that's sort of what uh, people were going through when the story first came out. I mean, you're, you're reminded, or at least I'm reminded, of these characters in, in Plato's dialogues, like the sophist Thrasymachus or, or a kind of made-up sophist who uh, Plato created in the, the dialogue, the Gorgias, named Callicles. These characters who who go through life as kind of uh, radical cynics who simply assert uh, over and over again that any sense of higher morals is just delusional. And the reality, if you're hard-nosed enough, is to realize that all that counts in life is winning and losing. And so if you if you volunteer to fight in a war and get killed while fighting, that's not noble. That's not honorable. That's not something that you consider to be valor and admire. That means that you're a sucker. You're a chump. You're a sap because you chose to sacrifice your own capacity to win for losing. And Trump we we are living in a country that has elected a man who actually views the world exactly like this, which is really quite amazing. I mean, there, 
it, the important the reason why I'm bringing up the Plato uh, references uh, not to to you know try to elevate the conversation higher than it ought to be when talking about Donald Trump, but simply to point out that this is nothing new. There have been people who view the world this way uh, as long as there has been human civilization, but. The fact that we've elected such a man to be president is astonishing, and we are kind of now lashed to him as he says these things when he's the commander-in-chief and should be the last person you would think in the world who would view the world that way, and yet he does. Thank you. Uh, Linda, um, so 3,000 years of human civilization <laughs> um, right out the window, right? I mean, the values that, that right. uh, Western civilization and all civilizations, frankly, uh, tend to uphold, courage, valor, selflessness, devotion to duty, truthfulness, things, truthfulness. Yeah. Um, those things, those are for suckers, apparently. Um, and, and I want you to respond in particular to that, to that and then also just to this detail that was also in that Atlantic story that um, he he objected to having wounded veterans at, at military displays like amputees because he said nobody wants to see that. Well, you know, no wonder he is so at home in uh, North Korean company. Uh, yep. Kim, Kim Il-sung, uh, back when North Korea first went communist, forbade uh, any individuals who had any sort of physical uh, infirmity from living in Pyongyang. And my guess mm. is that's probably still the case today. So that doesn't surprise me. I, I will tell you one thing that struck me and I thought was very telling. You know, he, we know that he did not serve. He was a draft dodger. He had these supposed bone spurs, which he claimed prevented him. Uh, he had five deferments, as I understand it. Uh, from serving in the military during the Vietnam uh, era. But what was more striking to me was to learn that no one in Donald Trump's family for generations has served in the U.S. military. His grandfather, who came uh, from Germany, um, went back to Germany, uh, then Prussia, and uh, decided he could not stay because he was going to be drafted into the Prussian military. So he came back to the United States. His father, Fred, did not serve in the military. He did not serve in the military. And according to Mary Trump in uh, her book, there was actually discussion about what would happen if Don Jr., who apparently did flirt with the idea of joining the military, uh, were to, um, to actually enlist. And Mary Trump claims that he would have been disinherited by Ivana uh, and by Donald Trump if he had joined the military. Uh, in addition, in the prenuptial agreement that uh, he had with uh, uh, Marla Maples, he uh, was supposed to come up with $100,000 uh, a year in child support, but that would be vacated if uh, his daughter ended up joining the military. So this is a man that not only has never served, but he comes from a community of people that do not value service. And I don't know about you, but I cannot think of a single person in my circle of friends, acquaintances, or family who do not have anyone who has ever served their country during a time of war. Wow. 
Um, I did not know some of those details. That is really interesting. Yasha, you know what it reminds me of? Um, in the first Godfather movie and in the book, um, the uh, the Godfather is very put out with his son, Michael, because Michael is serving in the U.S. Uh, Army. Uh, not Not the code of the mafia. Well, I think there is a strange strain to for time populists like Donald Trump of you know valorizing um, you know immorality. It is saying, look, you know, there's all of these elites that are corrupt and that are self-serving, and they hide all of that by pretending to adhere to these standards and norms and so on. But you and I, we're smarter than that, at least street smarter than that, right? We're cleverer mm-hmm. than that. We realize that this is all baloney um, and that everybody's just in it for themselves um, mm. and that we should reject all of these attempts to hold us to these standards. Um, and, you know, elements of that can be quite appealing to citizens in countries around the world. I mean, there's a reason why authoritarian populists have done well, not just in the United States with Donald Trump, but in Hungary and Venezuela and countries around the world, because there is a sense that a lot of people do have that, you know what, perhaps there's something to that. Perhaps elites really do sometimes invoke these values without living up to them themselves. Perhaps there is a lot of sort of 4th of July speech making um, that actually is a little bit superficial. Um, and perhaps we do need somebody who just sort of fights for us. Um, and that has always been part of Trump's appeal. Uh, mm. But what's interesting about Trump is how extreme he is in this and how little of a sense he has of, you know, when the appeal of a smart guy who's going to fight for you um, gives way to horror at the sheer extent of a lack of compassion he seems to have and the lack of patriotism he seems to have. And so I think uh, sometimes uh, those breaches of taboos have worked very well for Donald Trump because they have um, uh, made people think that he's going to do anything for the people he uh, stands up for, irrespective of the rules. Um, Perhaps sometimes because they've drawn the outrage of people who are generally disliked. And so people, I think, 2016 thought, well, if all of these people dislike Trump, then I guess there must be something to him. There must be something that's okay. Uh, But Trump has also, at the same time, really placed himself outside of the cultural mainstream of the United States and really horrified people by the extent to which he seems to lack compassion. And we're seeing that in this story. Um, This is an area in which saying, hey, you know what, going to war and fighting for your country and getting injured is for suckers. Uh, It shares that element of amorality, which comes deep from within Donald Trump, I think, uh, but it rightly... um, uh, is horrifying to a vast majority of Americans. Um, <clears throat> yeah, this is so, so interesting. Um, Bill, one other aspect of this struck me as funny, uh, that Trump went out to, on Labor Day, he went out to defend himself um, after the story. And uh, the way he chose to do it was by attacking, saying the generals don't like me, uh, he said, because they want to do nothing but fight wars so that all those beautiful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy. And uh, now, now, first of all, um, nobody has been a bigger booster of military spending than Trump. Trump is the guy, isn't he, who said he didn't want to pursue um, any uh, 
further uh, investigations of how Adnan Khashoggi was killed because Saudi Arabia buys so many uh, uh, military, uh, so much military equipment from us. Um, but also, it just struck me that you know that kind of talk about you know the military is you know they're only in it for the for the money they're only in it to you know the, they want endless wars and so on i mean you couldn't have asked for a more perfect uh, sort of left wing critique of uh, of american policy right coming out of the mouth of trump oh look uh <laughs> This conversation is almost like piling on at this point, and I'm, I'm tempted to invoke the old legal principle, race ipse loquitur. Yes, <laughs> the thing speaks for itself. Uh, you know what? What more can we say? Uh, but having denied that there's anything more left to say, I will now proceed to say it. Uh, two two brief points. Uh, first of all. It's bad enough that this mentality in, infects all of the um, domestic politics that Trump touches. But what is even worse, in my opinion, is the way that it leads directly, ineluctably, to the principle of moral equivalence between and among nations. And so a standard international consequence of Trump's amoral cynicism is the belief that, well, we shouldn't be criticizing other countries for doing bad things because we're just as bad. Yep. Right. So it deprives him of any basis, even if he were of a mind, to criticize the immoral, murderous, genocidal conduct of other nations. It deprives him of any basis to do so. Okay, point number two, and this is going to surprise you. If it were not for the fact that Donald J. Trump has inflicted so much damage on the United States, I would actually feel sorry for him. His moral and emotional vocabulary is so limited it's as though there's a whole portion of the world that he's incapable of experiencing and responding to. You know, on some level, it must be very, very sad and lonely to be Donald Trump. Uh, beset by enemies, uh, you know, believing simultaneously that there's no such thing as justice and that you've been unjustly treated. Uh, you know, I, I could go on. This is, you know, you know, this, this is, you know, this is a very sad example of what can happen to human beings when, as Aristotle says, they are, they are devoid, you know, of the training and upbringing that only a regard for the law can provide. 
Okay, Yasha. Oh, we've got Plato and Aristotle. We've got Plato, exactly. I was just going to say we have Plato and Aristotle in the first 20 minutes of this podcast. I think, you know, people are probably thinking, wow, this is so highbrow. <laughs> you started it, Damon. <laughs> I know, I know. So by Yasha, the way, now I, mean, I, 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 I will see you a Plato and Aristotle bill and I'll uh, raise you by one of my favorite philosophers of the 20th century, Bernard Williams. Um, because one of the you know, deep questions that philosophers have asked for thousands of years since the inception of uh, philosophy is, you know, why shouldn't we just be egotistical? Why shouldn't we just pursue our own interests? Why should we be moral at all? And there are different questions to this. Um, I mean, Christian theology gives one kind of question that there's a moral law that God has laid down. Um, there are attempts to try and give secular the transcendental groundings for that. Um, and Bernard Williams, in a, I think, brilliant contribution, said, look, none of this is going to convince everybody. Um, you know, some people are not religious. Some people do not believe in these kind of transcendental uh, groundings of why we should be moral. But there's another reason that actually is much more straightforward and that can potentially appeal to people irrespective of the kind of religious tradition they come from and so on. And that is to ask what kind of life you will actually lead if you don't believe in morality at all. Um, if you don't have any sense of moral obligation, uh, would you be capable of friendship? Would you be capable of love? Would you be capable of all of the wonderful things that come with those relationships in our lives? And I'd never thought about that essay in the context of Donald Trump until what Bill just said. But I think uh, that I agree with him, that the life that Donald Trump is leading is a very, very sad life because he is an egoist of a kind that Bernard Williams described and therefore isn't capable of, of friendship, of love, of those kinds of deep human connections that actually make life worthwhile. And in that sense, yes, I do feel sorry for him. It's really, really interesting. Um, I I would feel sorry for him. Um as Bill said, if he hadn't done so much damage, um, I'm afraid I, I'm too angry uh, to to feel pity at the moment. Um, and also, it, his personal defects do not account for how he was able to hijack an entire political party. But we'll come back to that, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, okay, let us move now to the other big blockbuster uh, this week was the Bob Woodward book. Um, somebody inside the White House um, has been giving unbelievably damaging information to the mainstream media, um, and that person should be stopped, except that it's Donald Trump himself, um, who sat down inexplicably for 17 interviews with Woodward, and they are tape recorded. Uh, Damon, uh, <laughs> first of all, let's start with that. Why do you suppose, I don't, you don't have to answer this because it's, I, I think, well, if you want, if you want to address the why in the world would he talk to Bob Woodward, please do. If not, we can move on to a different question. Well, I, I, I have a sentence or two on that. that okay. It just seems obvious to me, but maybe not to everyone. Um, I mean, Donald Trump is a man whose sensibility and outlook on the world was ineluctably shaped in the 1970s and 80s. He's very much out of that generation, uh, so much so that a lot of what he says 
really doesn't make entire sense unless you lived through those years and remember where his his sensibility was formed. And I think what we're seeing here is just simply he's sort of starstruck. Like, yeah. this is Bob Woodward wants to talk to me. Ooh, I can impress him. And note that he's what he's gotten in trouble uh, about so far from these interviews is stuff where he actually is is trying to portray himself as like sober and sensible and informed and not doing his usual BS routine that he saves for his own kind of the Fox News universe and Twitter and uh, people kind of who he, who he thinks he, he treats as marks who he's trying to kind of fool all the time with his routine. He actually like sits down and like, Oh, I've gotten intelligence briefings and Oh, this virus is going to be is really terrible. And he knows that it's aerosolized and yeah, you know, all these things that if he actually governed over the following six months in light of what he says to Woodward, the trajectory of the virus in this country could have been quite different. And yet he didn't do that because only Woodward gets the tr- the kind of the highbrow, the high level Trump, which is a great expression of the fact that Woodward was the big dig, the big guy who was the the you know one of the two journalists who brought down Nixon and Watergate, and so he's famous and he he gets on television and he writes all these books and all these presidents talk to him, so he was flattered that Woodward wanted to talk to him. So he did. And uh, now, you know, helped to hang himself for the umpteenth time as a result. That's how yeah. it looks to me. at least. Yeah. Yep. No, I'm glad, I'm glad you chose to answer the question. That's uh, perfect. Um, Linda, uh, one of the things that he's getting into serious trouble about is that he told Woodward, for example, on fe- in February, uh, in a conversation, February 7th, that um, COVID-19 was was uh, much deadlier than the flu, maybe five times more deadly. Um, and yet what he was saying in public that very same week was when it gets a little warmer, it, it miraculously goes away. I think it's going to work out good. We have only 11 cases and they're all getting better and so on and so forth um, throughout these many months. Um, so that's, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of unspinnable. What do you think? Well, he's a con man. I mean, the fact is he thought he could con Bob Woodward. And one of the things that always surprises me about Donald Trump is it turns out he really does think he's smart and that he's <laughs> smarter than other people. It always surprises me. I don't know why I'm surprised, but I am. Um, and and he thinks he's smarter than Bob Woodward. And so, you know, he, he co- tries to con him and he obviously thinks he's smarter than all the rubes that come to his, you know, various uh, rallies, uh, campaign rallies. So he knows he can con them. I mean, he was doing it again this week on on the wall. Remember how I told you Mexico would pay for the wall? Well, it, you know, we got toll booths, so we're going to be collecting tolls, and they are going to be paying. I mean, he's he's con. He's just a he's a con man. Uh, but you know, it. What is so upsetting about all of this, Mona, is uh, if you talk to people who are Trump supporters, and I still have friends and family who support Trump, they discount. It all. Uh, some one of uh, one old contact of mine who uh, used to appear on a radio show I used to do, and who's a retired uh, army uh, officer, 
was warning about the Atlantic piece uh, the day before it came out. I guess people knew it was coming out and was saying, you're going to be hearing some things tomorrow that um, are not true. And it's, you know, there are going to be things that Trump supposedly said about the military, but just don't believe them. And unfortunately, it works. And I don't know how to explain it. I don't know, you know, I mean, I am able to understand somebody who says, I really like that list of two dozen or 20 or however many it was uh, yesterday that he released of Supreme Court nominees. And I'm going to vote for him because he's going to put those uh, people on the bench. I can understand that. I don't agree with it. I don't think it's the right decision, but I can understand it. What I cannot understand is the people who try to pretend that he is not a truly toxic influence in this country and that he does not uh, do the things that we see and hear him doing all the time, who want us to simply close our eyes, cover our ears, and shut our mouth. And that, unfortunately, applies to an awfully lot of people. Yes. Um, Bill, following up on a point you made a moment ago, um, I found some of the most disturbing um, reports in this book were Trump's descriptions of his relationship with dictators, specifically Kim Jong-un, where, I'm sorry, but he just sounds depraved, Trump, that is. Um, He says that uh, describing the chemistry with Kim, he says, you meet a woman in one second, you know whether or not it's going to happen. And then he boasts that Kim tells, quote, tells me everything, including a graphic account of how he killed his uncle. And he thrilled that Kim called him your excellency. Um, That's, I'm, you know, just in light of what you were saying a moment ago about moral equivalence, you know, this is, this is just mind boggling, even for somebody like me. Um, who has always thought that Trump lacked a moral compass, but that doesn't get close to it. This is depraved. Well, Mona, uh, you you set up your question to be self-answering, uh, and I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure what I can add. It's clear you know, Trump himself apparently, you know, in his one of his conversations with Woodward views it as odd, in need of explanation, that he seems to get along better with the toughest, meanest SOBs on the planet uh, than with others. Yeah, He, re- he regards that as mysterious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's anything but. You know, it's, it's clear, you know, it's clear that in the presence of absolute power, you know, he himself feels energized, you know, perhaps by the hope or the fantasy that he too could enjoy that kind of power to position your own uncle in front of a cannon and then blow him to bits, which is the quote unquote graphic story uh, that you referred to. Uh, And, you know, what is, I think, most dangerous about Trump is his extraordinary affinity to power unchecked 
by any and all moral considerations. Uh, and the United States should account itself very lucky you know, that his malevolence has been so thoroughly diluted by his incompetence. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think that we would have careened into an undemocratic ditch already, which we have not, thank God. Yeah. Yasha, um, let's think for a minute about the people around Trump. Um, people like Jim Mattis, uh, who described him is apparently to um, Woodward. And, and of course, Mattis has since been very public about this and written for the newspaper and so on, see, saying he's dangerous and unfit for the presidency. Um, Dan Coates, uh, the former director of national intelligence, thought that uh, perhaps Putin does have something on Trump because he couldn't imagine any other explanation for why uh, Trump treated Putin the way he did. Um, and, um, and, you know, people, people like this are patriots. They do love their country. They were worried. Um, but for the future, what lessons can we learn about the way people like this behaved and conducted themselves during the Trump years? Did they do this wrong? Should they have spoken out immediately? Did they grant him more legitimacy by sticking it out? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question. That's, that's tough to answer, um, in part because um, some of the hopes that I had at the beginning of Trump's presidency on how he might be constrained by institutions and, uh, you know, figures with institutional authority seem to have been misplaced, which is to say that, you know, in, in early 2017, it still felt as though, um, you know, if uh, certain army generals came out and expressed opposition to uh, unconstitutional commands, um, if all of the former uh, presidents of the United States gave a statement together warning about the illegal actions that the Trump administration is taking in some area. Uh, that might really move public opinion. It might really wake Americans up to the threat that Trump poses. And perhaps there was a short window in which that might have been the case. Um, but I think uh, we've learned over the last years that the rise of somebody like Donald Trump um, completely scrambles earlier uh, partisan divisions. And by scrambling earlier partisan divisions, it also scrambles the ability of people who are on both sides of those political divisions to say, hey, look, we've come together on something. You should really trust that on this, because if we are able to speak in one voice, it's because something very important is going on. Um, instead, everything becomes uh, polarized along the new lines, which is, you know, here are the people who like Donald Trump on one side, and here are people who dislike Donald Trump on the other side. And what happens even to somebody like Jim Mattis, uh, who can hardly be accused of being a secret uh, liberal or pinko or communist or anything like that, um, somebody who would have enjoyed tremendous uh, respect and prestige until quite recently in American life, um, now simply the moment he starts to criticize Donald Trump, looks like, oh, well, it's just another anti-Trumper. Um, you know, what else do you expect? Um, and so, uh, you know, I think there is certainly a wide range of performances from people who have mostly kept their integrity, even, uh, you know, because they have never been willing to work with Donald Trump, um, to people who were willing to try and contain the damage he might do by going into service, but have mostly um, 
kept their bearings um, and refused to uh, act in deeply uh, illegitimate ways. And Jamad is probably forced into that category, so I, I, I don't want to speak to the details. Uh, you know, two people who have just been completely compromised uh, by, uh, by going into the administration or by serving Donald Trump. Um, but how big a difference all of that has ultimately made, I must say I'm less sure about now than I would have been three or four years ago. Bill, did you have something you wanted to add? Normal rules of conduct make sense in normal times, but less so in abnormal times. Uh, and so while I respect the fact that people like Jim Mattis left, you know, left honorably, uh, and then held their tongues. I can't agree with it, mm -hmm. right? Because they were obeying the normal code of conduct about people who serve a president in leadership positions. And implicit in that normal behavior was the assumption that they were in a normal situation. And they weren't. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question directly, I think people who had direct experiences and then did not speak out in a reasonable period of time after they left uh, made a mistake. And uh, I don't, as I said, I'm not sure I blame them for it because in order to avoid that mistake, they would have had to shift their perspective entirely to understand that unlike any other president, in our lifetime, this guy was actually a threat to the basic framework that we take for granted. Right. Um, yes, uh, Linda. Linda, I, um, Damon. That is, I want to. I want to ask you to sort of reflect um, a little more on something that Linda raised. Um, namely, you could say I, that Trump's attacks on the media that began right at the beginning fake media, fake news, and so forth, don't believe anything, that all of that was laying the ground for where we are now. It was it was to immunize him against any damaging revelation, no matter how gross. And um, it, uh, it, it remains, to, it, do you think it worked or is it still an open question as to whether that really worked? Well, it, it's a it's a complicated issue because I think the the root issue involved is the desire to turn Trump into a, a figure who is trusted above everything else, and that certainly includes the media as a major competitor to him as the ultimate arbiter of all truth, and so that comes up a lot, and it is very significant in contributing to that. Uh, effort, but it doesn't end with the media. And we saw that with the reaction to the Atlantic piece, because uh, as well as the, with the Woodward book, it's the same dynamic where, for instance, in the Atlantic piece, when that came out, um, the, the main thing I saw immediately uh, online was the, the dismissal of it because the sources were anonymous and the claim that that, of course, Jeffrey Goldberg can't be trusted. Why? Well, because he edits that liberal rag, The Atlantic. Um, and then uh, this, the, the, the assertion was that because the sources were anonymous, that he just made them up. 
Now that, of course, is straight Trump. That's the fake news line. He goes after any time there's a damning uh, report about him in the New York Times, Washington Post, or anywhere else that he doesn't like. If the sources are anonymous, he claims they're just made up out of whole cloth as if journalists regularly do something like that. Like the idea that if you are a journalist uh, and you, uh, the idea that the editor in chief of the Atlantic would simply make up something and then attribute it to four imaginary people is really unthinkable. And there really hasn't been an example of something like that revealed. So it's not like there's a pattern to even look at. But again, I don't think it's just so. So I'll say first of all that 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 is that is very effective for Trump to to know that most of his supporters will simply dismiss the story out of hand. But the thing is that imagine if the sources hadn't been anonymous. Say it was Mattis or or, or Kelly or any of the other kind of high level people who worked closely with Trump, and they did go on the record and said, yeah. Trump said this, then Trump couldn't just say, oh, just miss it, fake fake news, anonymous sources, they just, Jeffrey Goldberg made it up out of thin air. Then it would pivot to something slightly different. Then it would just be, oh, well, he's just lying. He's just made it up. It's his word against mine. And of course, you know that you trust me. And so then everyone would trust him. So again, I think the the core thing is turning Trump into the only arbiter of what's true and false. Um, And then, of course, the final line of defense always is if in the end it becomes indisputable, if you actually find a tape, like say on one of those 17 hours of tapes with Woodward, he says that about the soldiers, that they're just suckers or losers. Then Then we go to the final line, which is to say, oh, yeah, well, of course, what's the big deal? Uh, or he was joking. Or he was joking. Whatever it is, you just yeah. you always no. just dismiss, and that's really the the ultimate principle at work at all of the different stages. Yeah. Um, for what it's worth, I I actually do think that there was a, an opportunity to to uh, pick up on what Yasha said. Um, I do think there was early on in the the Trump ascendancy, if more people had spoken up and had asserted the primacy of truth and certain virtues and values, um, I think the, the, the followers had not yet become so cemented in their cynicism and in their support for Trump that it might have had a, an effect, but, but it's long, we're long past that point. Um, that, by the way, only applies to the Trump cult. It does not apply to um, you know, people who are sort of who think of themselves as former Republicans, which are a fairly substantial bunch of people, and it also doesn't apply to people who are uh, you know undecided or or independent. So we'll see. All right, let's talk now about um, the other stories that came out this week that sort of suggest the um, Trump administration is is putting uh, government uh, putting the state in service of Trump. So the first example I would cite is, uh, and and uh, Linda, maybe you can take this one, <laughs> uh, the Justice Department has decided to take over the defamation suit that E. Jean Carroll filed um, against Trump because she accused him of rape. He denied it and said that she's not my type. Um, <clears throat> that was his defense. And um, and now the Justice Department under um, Bill Barr has said that that was within the scope of the president's official duties and therefore 
unlike in the Clinton case where he paid all of his own legal bills in the Paula Jones case, now the um, the, the Justice Department is going to defend this case. Uh, are we surprised? I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, there is almost nothing that Bill Barr can do right now that would surprise me. I have never seen someone so corrupted uh, in such a short period of time as I have seen William Barr, uh, who I would have once, um, he wasn't a friend, he was an acquaintance, he's somebody I knew, uh, and somebody I respected. So I'm not surprised. It remains to be seen, and we'll, we'll see, you know, whether the federal judge, whom they're now trying to get uh, to take this case, whether he'll put up with it. The idea that a defamation suit against the president, who has basically called uh, his accuser a liar and said, as you suggested, that he wouldn't rape her because she wasn't his type, that somehow he did this in the course of his official duties. I don't know. Uh, I've read Article 2 of the Constitution. I don't recall that being in there. I don't recall, you know, gee, I have the right to, you know, attack uh women's looks uh, as part of my official duties. It's, uh, it is really astounding, but it shouldn't surprise us. And what makes it so worrisome is not this particular case. It's the way in which Barr is intervening with the Justice Department across the board on everything from claiming that there are thousands of people who vote illegally in the yep. United States to uh, defending every single act um, that this president undertakes. And going easy on his friends like and go, Stone. And going, and, that's right. Yeah, and pulling yeah. back in, in terms of uh, Flynn and, and Stone and, mm-hmm. and others uh, agreeing to fire a uh, sitting U.S. Uh, attorney in the Southern District of New York and trying to replace him with somebody who thought was going to be more uh, friendly Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think all of this speaks to the level of corruption. I mean, he makes John Mitchell look like, you know, a choir boy. <laughs> it makes him look like Chief Justice Rehnquist. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, you know, Bill Barr, who uh, most people think was an excellent lawyer earlier in his career and uh, all that, um, you know, he has put himself in service to a fellow who says that Article 2 of the Constitution gives him the right to do anything I want. That's what Trump, that's Trump's constitutional uh, interpretation. Um, Okay, Yasha, there's another one. Um, The Department of Homeland Security, uh, there's a, a former head of the Homeland Security Department's intelligence branch has filed a whistleblower complaint. Um, saying that um, he was ordered by Chad Wolf, who, by the way, is serving illegally because he did not receive Senate confirmation. Um, But he was told by Chad Wolf to stop producing intelligence assessments on Russian interference in the election and focus instead on Iran and China, and that he should uh, not disseminate a report on Russian disinformation that was seeking to portray Joe Biden uh, as uh, ailing and mental health because, quote, it made the president look bad. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I have to say that I uh, lost the patience to uh, really engage with each of these incredible outrages a little while ago. I mean, um, you know, we're in this very bizarre situation where it has just been absolutely become absolutely clear 
to what extent the president is willing to, um, uh, you know, jeopardize the most basic rules about how American democracy is supposed to work and what the limits of his power are and uh, how we ensure that we have uh, free and fair elections. Um, and that it has no consequences. But as long as he remains president, he is simply able to get away with most of those things. Uh, these stories are too complicated and intricate for people to care. Most Americans have made uh, their negative assessment of a president in any case. Uh, those who still stand by him uh, aren't likely to be swayed by these kinds of things. And the only remedy we have left is uh, to win the elections in the fall in a very, very clear manner and uh, get Donald Trump out of office. Um, so you are right that this is... Um, an especially uh, egregious case, um, uh, you know, it, it would have been enough for the biggest scandal of the year or of the administration um, 10 or 20 years ago. Um, at this point, it just feels like, you know, one other piece of another ending stream um, of uh, pieces of evidence um, for, you know, the evident contempt that the president has for our institutions. Bill, one of the things that made me a conservative when I was young was that I was very wary of government power uh, and very concerned that um, the state not have too much power over individuals because power in the hands of the state is dangerous. And that was the insight of our founders who were very concerned about that same thing. And they devised a system that would limit the power of the state um, and, uh, it's look throughout our history, there have been many episodes where people, the, the ordinary person has not had the same kind of concern, but what strikes me lately is that even elites don't seem to be worried about excessive power provided that it's in the hands of somebody they like. You're right. And when we step back from all of these episodes, I think that we, we have learned the hard way you know, that our institutions are not as robustly resistant to usurpations of power as they were intended to be and as we hoped they were. Uh, so assuming that we can put this wretched episode behind us, I think we all need to think hard about how to renovate our institutions uh, to make them more robust, uh, there are th there are things that were done, you know, after Richard Nixon's administration, and some of them were even done during it, that had the had the effect of dragging back power from the executive branch to the Congress. Mm -hmm. I think we've reached a moment where we have to we have to repeat that process with substantive reforms that are appropriate to our particular times and circumstances and problems. Uh, we do not have the luxury of assuming that just because Donald Trump is removed from office by the people, that the possibility or even the reality of usurpation and abuse of power uh, has gone away. Uh, our system has been revealed as much more loose-jointed than we thought it was. The realm, particularly of executive discretion, is much broader than we imagined. Uh, the ability of a determined executive to get his way 
over agency as well as congressional resistance is, you know, to me as a lifetime constitutionalist, astounding. And so we had better not relax if we win this election because the flaws are structural. Yes, well said. I completely agree. Um, Okay, let us now turn to our final segment where we will um, highlight or low light something that we want to draw attention to. So, um, Damon, let's start with you. Well, uh, in keeping with my pattern of of trying to um, always kind of broaden our scope of concern, let's put it that way, um, this was a very Trump-focused episode of the podcast. So let me go a little broader and point to uh, some, uh, at least one one dot in the constellation of dots that can be connected about uh, broader troubling trends in the country and the culture. This is a new poll released uh, from Gallup, uh, and it, it lists it's it's the usual Gallup poll that lists kind of uh, the the public opinion approval of different institutions in American life. The sports industry now has a negative image on balance among Americans as a whole, with 30% viewing it positively and 40% negatively for a net negative 10 positive score. This contrasts with the positive, the 20 plus positive image it enjoyed in 2019. So that's a, that's a, a, a 30 point drop in one year from positive 20 to negative 10. Uh, This, I assume, is a function of the kind of wokeification of the sports world uh, in the wake of the George Floyd protests, the sort of work stoppage or strike that we saw in the NBA a few weeks ago. this is yet another realm of American culture that has been sucked into the culture wars, and it's not a, a good sign for the health of the country. Um, it's it's a sign that areas of the country where where people can kind of come to a kind of consensus to put politics aside uh, is shrinking, and uh, and uh, we we have to be on. Yeah, agreed. Um, Yasha. Look, I, I, I guess I'll try and highlight what is going on in Belarus at the moment. Uh, there's a very courageous mass movement to force uh, the longstanding uh, dictator, the most longstanding dictator in Europe, uh, to uh, resign from his office after he uh, rigged elections. Um, it is not at all clear to me that this opposition movement will succeed. Um, in fact, uh, two of its prime leaders have already been disappeared, um, and there are growing reports of uh, real atrocities committed uh, against the protesters. Um, but I do think it should make us hopeful in one respect, which is that uh, the demand for democratic governance, the revulsion at dictators, uh, is universal. Uh, we can see it across many different cultural and geographic contexts and will assert itself even in the face of great danger. So for I'm very worried about the brave activists in Belarus um, and, and, and slightly pessimistic about whether or not they will be able to build a genuine democracy anytime soon, uh, I am optimistic about what this tells us on uh, you know, the, the global appeal 
uh, other values for which we're fighting in, today in the United States as well. Yes, thank you. Linda? Well, I was going to uh, give a shout out to you, Mona, in your piece in The Bulwark this week about the coming landslide for Joe Biden. Uh, I thought it was a great piece, but I want to offer a sober warning. And this time, I'll, I'll uh, if people are not tired of listening to my voice after an hour here on your podcast, uh, they can also tune in this week to the New York Times Opinion Podcast, which is called The Argument, to hear me talk with Chuck Rocha about the Hispanic vote. And that is a bit of an antidote to your piece because the Hispanic vote, you know, we hear about this every election cycle, that Hispanics, there are about 13.3 million uh, eligible voters uh, who are Hispanic in the United States. Uh, But uh, they are concentrated. And three of the states in which they're concentrated are Texas, Arizona, and Florida. Arguably, all three of those um, are going to have very close races this time for president, Uh, Texas maybe less so, but certainly Arizona and Florida uh, could be considered toss-ups. And Chuck Rocha, my uh, partner in crime on the New York Times podcast, um, was an advisor to Joe Biden, and he, uh, I'm sorry, an advisor to Bernie Sanders, and he says that the Biden campaign is not doing nearly as well among Hispanic voters as Bernie did, and that they are not spending the resource and the time and the effort to get those voters out. And Hispanics, according to the polls, are going to vote anywhere from 20 to 30 percent for Trump, with Hispanic males actually, in some places, uh, a majority of them are going to vote for Trump. So this is an important issue. And if you want to hear more about it, tune into that podcast. Uh, Bill, I've always thought it was a mistake to give men the right to vote. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you ne- you're next, Bill. I'm next. Well, you introduced this segment, Mona, by saying highlight or low light. But I'm going to be a Stakhanovite this week and offer, <laughs> and, and offer one of each. Okay. Uh, on the highlight side, uh, the Washington Post about four hours ago released a new poll with a result that I found enormously encouraging. And I'm not being sarcastic here. Uh, 66% of registered voters now believe that they will not know the result of the presidential election on election night and don't expect to know. Uh, And A third of voters now believe that it will be four days or longer until they know the results. Now, the reason this encourages me is that with this expectational baseline having been reset, I think the president's effort to charge foul if we don't know on election night are not going to fall on on receptive soil. Uh, Call me a cockeyed optimist. Uh, But uh, that's the way I interpret these findings. Now, for the low light. I've been reading a wonderful book called The Presidents Versus the Press by Harold Holzer, who's a great Lincoln scholar. And we read this about the election of 1828 between Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams, 
the Jacksonians began circulating the rumor that Louisa Adams was not even an American citizen. Uh, the first lady had indeed been born in England, but at that time her father, a Marylander, was serving as U.S. consul to London, a circumstance that made her as American as her husband. The publicity reported, reportedly sent Mrs. Adams into a depression that drove her to compulsive silk spinning. Uh, and then a page later, we learn that after Jackson's victory in 1828, he drafted no fewer than 56 pro-Jackson editors, publishers, and reporters from pro-Jackson newspapers, which is the equivalent, I think, of bringing the entire Fox newsroom into the Trump administration. <laughs> so there is indeed nothing new under the sun. Right. Uh, may, may, may I just say that this gives me some hope that in the wake of the outrageous claims that Kamala Harris is not a natural-born citizen that have sort of been percolating on some of the more extreme ends of the internet, um, I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing reports and videos of Doug Emhoff's uh, silk spinning in the coming weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But that that is particularly interesting. I did not know this, um, uh, Bill, and and uh, about her uh, silk spinning. But it is interesting because because one of um, one of Jackson's great grievances was that the stories that were circulated about him being a bigamist uh, had driven his own wife to get to have heart failure and die young. So, so it's interesting that uh, that wasn't the only wife who was uh, damaged. Um, By the way, back, uh, yes. The you know the sad fact is that those charges were correct. Well, that's true. Yes, I mean it's complicated. Uh. <laughs> but there was a considerable period. No, it's true. During it's true. which she, he, Andrew Jackson, thought he was married to a woman who had not consummated her divorce with her husband. That is true. Yes, <laughs> but uh, but that doesn't change the fact that Jackson felt victimized. No, it doesn't. Um, right. <laughs> All right. Well, mine uh, in my continuing effort to demonstrate um, the uh, ongoing destruction of what had been once been a proud party, namely the Republican Party. Um, this week, we learned that Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, and top officials uh, from Donald Trump's campaign are going to attend a Montana fundraiser that is being hosted by a couple who have expressed support Yes, for the QAnon conspiracy theory. Uh, so Pence will be there in Bozeman along with Ronna McDaniel, uh, who is the chairwoman of the GOP, and uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle, the girlfriend of Trump's uh, Trump Jr., uh, along with a bunch of others. Uh, so um, there we are. It continues apace. The uh, uh, as uh, as the uh, estimable editor of the Bulwark, Jonathan V. Last has put it, um, QAnon is the new Tea Party. All right. Um, we thank you all for listening. Yasha, wonderful to have you with us. We hope next time it can be in person. And uh, we encourage you all to rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast. You can reach me at mcharon at eppc.org. Love to get your feedback, suggestions, comments, and so forth. And thank you all for joining us. We will be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>